to the Indian Creek Baptist Church podcast. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact us. Our website is www.indiancreekbaptistchurch.org or our email address is info at indiancreekbaptistchurch.org. It is our sincere hope that through this podcast, God will speak to your heart and touch your life so that you may grow closer to him. Your Bibles will be back in the book of Esther today. We've been out for a while. We've uh, had some time looking at the reason for the season, looking at Christmas and New Year's. It's time for us to get back into the book of Esther. Uh, Esther chapter 6 is where we're going to pick up um, to give us all a refresher. Esther the queen has uh, gone in. They, her and Mordecai have fasted and prayed. and uh, Esther has gone in before the king, and the king has shown her mercy and brought her in uh, and allowed her to speak. And uh, Esther has invited the king and Haman to a banquet. And then the king and Haman have left, and Esther's not asked her petition. Uh, the king asked her twice what she needed, and and uh, what she desired and promised to give her everything she desired, even to the half of the kingdom. And as we left off, the last time we were in the book of Esther, Haman had left the banquet and gone out, and Mordecai again had refused to bow and refused to do uh, to worship him. And he had gone home angry and uh, bragged to his family and his friends of all of his riches and all of his children, everything that he had and how good he was, and then he said, but it all avails me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. And uh, Zeresh, Haman's wife, uh, persuaded him with, her, with their friends to build a gallows 50 cubits high, 80 feet high, to hang Mordecai on. Today, uh, we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 6, and we're going to see, uh, again, while God is not mentioned by name in the book of Esther. He's only alluded to in the fact that Esther and Mordecai fast, that the Jews have fasted once they found out that the decree was written that they should be destroyed. That's the only real thought of God anywhere throughout the book of Esther. But we're going to see God's hand begin to move. And, and as we looked at the book of Judges this morning, we see that God's grace and mercy, even when Israel was not repenting and not seeking Him, His grace and His mercy was that He was going to go ahead and He was going to raise up a deliverer. And here at another time, when Israel is not seeking God, except for this very short time of fasting, God is going to answer a prayer, and He's going to provide, and He's going to begin to work. So Esther chapter 6, the Bible says, On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana, and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, what, what honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the courtyard, or the outward court of the king's house, to speak unto the king, to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant servants said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. 
So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the royal crown which is or the crown royal which is upon his head, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal, whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house, mourning, and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his, his wise men and Zeresh his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Let's pray. Father God, we do love you. We thank you again for your word. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, even when we did not deserve it, even when we were not seeking it. Lord, for sending your Son to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to give us an opportunity to spend eternity with you. Lord, I pray as we study through chapter 6 that we would see your love, your mercy, and your grace, that we would see your character, that we would grow to understand you better so that we may serve you better. So God, please speak to our hearts today. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So many times in our lives we are discouraged and even angered because things just aren't going our way. There was a time not that long ago that I felt every week was made up of all Mondays. I used to say, this is the first Monday, this is the second Monday, this is the sixth Monday. For about a year it seemed like every day was the same. Problem after problem after problem. But what I was going through was nothing compared to what the Jews are going through right now. If they were anything like me, they were starting to feel like God had left them. Like he really didn't care anymore. And all that, on top of feeling like they were failing at everything and their life was worth nothing. For many people, this is a very dangerous time. We talked a little bit in Sunday school about uh, my time on the fire department and the different issues that uh, I had began to get jaded to. The last year I was there, we lost seven teenagers from the same high school to suicide. Seven in a year. Because they had all gotten to this point where they felt like nothing was going right for them, like nothing could change what they were going through. And this was the only way out. This time in our lives leads to doubt and fear. 
and it leads to a mostly reactive way of living. Instead of planning things out and and thinking things through, we just react. Now, there are times where we need to just react. If there's a child standing out in the street and they're about to get hit by a car, we need to just react. But then we need to plan and think about what we say to that child as we remove them from danger and not allow that time of frustration and fear to affect how we deal with them and make their life worse. It's this time, it is in this time where many fail or fall into thoughts of suicide and revenge. Every interaction becomes an argument and causes resentment and anger rather than joy and peace. It's far easier to remove ourselves from these things than it is to put in the effort to fix the problems. Haman is going through a time where no matter what happens in his life that's good, all he can see is Mordecai. All he can see is that that perceived slight that's being given to him, that, that, that rebellion. Mordecai and Esther are going through a time where it seems like every time they turn around, things are getting worse. Esther had gone in to the king and invited them to the banquet and they'd had the banquet and Mordecai now has just stumbled over his own feet and, and continued to stand on what he needs to stand on. But, but now he's got a gallows sitting in Haman's courtyard, 80 feet tall, waiting for him to be hanged on. These times we feel like we're alone. We feel like God is not there. But that doesn't mean that there's no hope. For the lost, there is the hope that at these lowest times, God will reveal himself to them. That someone will stand up and say, I can help. For the child of God, there is the understanding that God is there. He is still there and he loves you unconditionally. And just like the father of the prodigal son, he is waiting and watching for us to return. But return is the key word. Because God hasn't left. He hasn't moved. He is exactly the same place in the lives of Israel that he's always been. He's exactly the same place in our lives that he's always been. It's us that have moved away. It's us that has to make the decision to draw closer to him. Now Mordecai and Esther thankfully have made this decision. They've fasted. They've prayed. And they've begun to seek God. But sometimes it takes time for things to line up. The prodigal son's father had not moved. He was still working the same land with the same servants just waiting and watching for his son to return. It was the son who ran and found the hog pen, not the father that took him there and left him. Israel has run off and found the hog pen, 
And now it's going to take a little bit of time for them to travel back. To have their Heavenly Father hug them and kiss them on the neck. And arraign them or give them their, their apparel. But all the while, God is quietly working in the background. Not being recognized. But working in the lives of all those involved. Waiting for the day when his children will realize their failing and desire to return. The king has just had two encounters with Queen Esther. And I would imagine they've both been very confusing for him. First off, as he sat in the courtyard... The queen came in unannounced, knowing full well that the penalty if the king decided to not to not reach the scepter out to her, that the penalty would be her death. He had to imagine that there was something very urgent on her heart. And that's why he reached out and held the scepter out to her. And he asked her then, what is your petition? What is your request? I'll give it, give you whatever you need up to half of the kingdom. And she invited him to a banquet with Haman. And he had to be thinking in his mind, how is a banquet this important? How is this invitation something when she could have easily sent one of the chamberlains or one of the servants or anybody to invite the king? But she risked her life to come and invite me to a banquet. So as he attends, he again asks, What is your petition? What is your request? And she again says, Come to a banquet tomorrow that I will prepare for you. Again, I have to imagine as a, a husband, as a father, as someone who sees over and over again and who does this same very thing over and over again, Beats around the bush. You recognize in your spouse, in your children, in yourself, times where things just aren't right. And you're concerned. But you can't figure it out. I can imagine that, th that this is why, as we open chapter 6, it says, On that night could not the king sleep He laid there awake, restless, wondering, what is going on with the queen? What is going on in my kingdom? God was moving. God is working. And the king commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles. And they were read before the king. Now, I don't know about you, but history was always the subject that put me to sleep. It just was. When I was in high school, I had a history teacher, Mr. Miller. Mr. Miller was a great guy. Mr. Miller had already been teaching for at least 30 years by the time I was a junior in high school. Uh, Mr. Miller had taught my mom, had taught all my uncles, had taught my dad. He had been there a long time. And there are a lot of things about Mr. Miller that I respected but there are a lot of things and a lot of reasons that as a high school student, as a young man, 
full of himself that I took the opportunity to make fun of Mr. Miller at every turn. Mr. Miller was about as tall as Brooklyn. Like he probably couldn't see over this pulpit. He was a short guy. Well, I, we had a young man in class. His name was Bobby, and he decided he was a troublemaker, and, and uh, Mr. Miller was trying to correct him and send him to the office. And Bobby got on his knees and did the Hitler sign. The Hail Hitler sign? The funny thing about all that was that Bobby and Mr. Miller were the same height when Bobby was on his knees. And Mr. Miller just looked him square in the eye and sent him to the office. And he got up and he walked to the office. But Mr. Miller had this way of teaching that just for some reason I could not stay awake. In the front of his class he had one of our desks. And on it was an overhead projector. And for those of you that don't know what an overhead projector is, it's a box with a light inside. The light shines up through a piece of glass. You put a clear piece of paper, a piece of plastic on top of that glass and you write on it. And it projects it up and shines a mirror onto the wall or onto the screen. That was how Mr. Miller taught everything that he taught. But Mr. Miller would always start the class by taking attendance and then he would walk up to that desk and he would sit with his one leg propped up on the desk and the other one on the floor and that's how he would teach. Mr. Miller was left-handed so he would sit on the right side of the projector which put the, the head of the projector right in line with my head and his head so he couldn't see me unless he got up because I sat in that back corner. So needless to say, I slept through his classes a lot. But when I wasn't sleeping, I was trying not to laugh because as Mr. Miller would get up on that desk, he had to jump. And then his foot that was supposed to be on the floor kind of dangled. He could, If he stretched, he could get his big toe down and touch the floor, but otherwise his foot just kind of dangled. And he would sit there for the whole class and he would teach. But the thing that I remember the most about Mr. Miller was he had this extremely monotone voice. It never changed in pitch. It never changed in tempo. It never changed in volume. Even if he was yelling at you, it was the same volume. And it sounded like, for those of you that are old enough to remember this, do you remember the guy that did the dry eyes commercial? Mm-hmm. Dark-haired guy. Kind of looks like Mr. Bean. It's not Mr. Bean, but... He had that kind of a voice. And it was just extremely soothing. It put me to sleep. So it's no wonder that the king would have somebody come in and read him the history of his people. Because he was restless. He needed something to take his mind off of what he was thinking about in order so that he could get some rest to be able to get up the next morning and rule the kingdom. He never would have thought that something would come out of it. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how far back in history they went. It doesn't tell us where the reader started. It doesn't tell us how long the king was up. But it does tell us that it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door who had sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. That was all the way back in 
Esther chapter 4, where Mordecai had overheard the plot and he told Esther, and Esther had certified in Mordecai's name, and the plot had been found out, it had been written in the Chronicles. Something seemingly insignificant. Everyone just went on with their life. Yet now God is bringing it back into play and revealing that Mordecai had done this for the king. It's not by chance. It's not by coincidence. The Bible tells us that God turns the heart of the king as the, as the river. That, that God works even when we're not there. The king hears of what, is, what Mordecai has done and, and he asks, what has been done for this man that has done so much for me? What has been done to honor him? And his servants say, nothing. Nothing is done for him. So as the king finishes out the night, he's, his mind has now been taken off of everything to do with the queen. And, and he asks, who is in the court? Haman. Oh, Haman. Haman, all full of himself, has come before the king to ask for none other than Mordecai's head. Now, as I read through this section, I always get a chuckle. I always have to think about God's sense of humor and his sense of timing in this case. That at the very moment that Haman is coming in to ask to hang Mordecai, the king is going to ask Haman to honor Mordecai. Haman is given the opportunity to, to decide what the honor should be. But of course, Haman can't think that anybody else is worth more honor than him. You know, the Bible talks, about, talks often about those that humble themselves will be raised up, and those that raise themselves up will be humbled. Haman has raised himself up, and he is about to get humbled. He says, to honor the man, that the, the, the man that the king delighteth to honor, to show him honor, put him on your horse. Put him in your apparel. Better yet, put your crown on his head. That kind of sounds familiar. You know, Satan's big first act of disobedience was he wanted to exalt his throne above God's. He wanted to be God. Haman here is setting himself up, he thinks, to be king. As I was just reading through this, the only thing I think that is missing is that Haman says to put all of this task in the hand of your most noble prince instead of king, why don't you lead him through the city? But he says, 
task your most noble prince. And the king says, fine, that's what we'll do. Haman, go do that for Mordecai the Jew. I can only imagine the immediate look of shock on Haman's face as the king says, do all of this honor to Mordecai the Jew. The very man you've been secretly plotting to kill for so long. I can only imagine the thoughts going through Haman's head. But Haman is obedient. We, we've... In this story, this series, Lessons in Obedience, we started in the book of Jonah. And we saw Jonah disobey God and, and go to the ship and get thrown overboard and into the whale's belly and get vomited out on the land. And We saw God speak to Jonah again and Jonah go to Nineveh and preach. But we saw Jonah only preached, very simple, yet 40 days and God will destroy Nineveh. He didn't put any effort in. And then he went and he parked himself outside waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed because he didn't think they would repent. And he got angry with God. I can imagine Haman is going to do the same thing. The king says, make haste and do all this unto Mordecai the Jew. And Haman does and puts Mordecai on the horse and puts the apparel on him and the crown on his head and he leads him through the city Saying, this, thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. I don't think he put much effort into that. I think he did it grudgingly. I think... Haman is now in one of those times where he is beginning to understand the trouble he's about to be in. For Haman, bad is only going to get worse. As he finishes parading Mordecai through the city, he goes home and recounts the day to his wife and his friends and his wife his loving wife says, if Mordecai is of the seed of the Jews, you're going to fail. And as he's dealing with them, the chamberlains come to take him to the banquet. Now, I don't know if he's put two and two together yet. I don't know if he still thinks that he's okay. That he's just going to wait a little bit and then seek some other avenue against Mordecai. But we know that that's not how it goes. The worst part about going through these times of trouble and trial and despair is often not the trial, the trouble, or the despair. It's looking at those around you who appear to be going through a time of great prosperity. 
Haman has been plotting for so long to get rid of the Jews, and now Mordecai has been lifted up, even to a place where Haman had just been. I have to imagine that Haman is looking at Mordecai thinking, I deserve that. We know that he thought he deserved to be honored. Let Haman's story be an encouragement for us today. Let Mordecai's story be an encouragement for us today. That Those times of trial and trouble and despair, they only last for a season. Mordecai and Esther sought God. And God is going to deliver them. We've seen throughout the book of Judges that Israel has been punished and they've cried out to the Lord and the Lord has delivered them. And even now, as we get into Judges chapter 13, we understand that they're not crying out to God, but God is going to deliver them. For us, God sent his son to this earth while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But also, let Haman's story be a warning. One day soon, all of those who are not saved will enter an eternity of torment. A torment that will never end. Pain and suffering like nothing that has ever been felt before. All those who have not been saved will spend eternity in hell. And right now, the only thing standing between them and hell is us proclaiming the gospel. The only thing standing between the Jews and destruction is Queen Esther asking for their lives. remember in times of trial and despair that even though you can't see God he's right there where you left him patiently waiting for you to come home so he can love you and care for you again he is working as he always has I've told you before this building was a bar when I was little and I spent a lot of time in that back hallway where the actual bar was, where they mixed the drinks and they poured the beer. I wouldn't wish my life on anybody, not even my worst enemy. The things I've endured, the things I've seen, the things I've done. But for 21 years, while I completely avoided God and didn't believe that he even existed, God was working. God was moving. You know, that my time in Creston, 
jaded me, made me hard, made me lose my compassion. But if it hadn't been for that time in Creston, I'd never be saved. I wouldn't be standing here today. If it hadn't been for my wife being diagnosed with cancer, I'd probably still be in Creston. I wouldn't be standing here today. If it hadn't been for her passing away, I wouldn't have the godly woman that I have today as a wife. We wouldn't be here. God is working. Even in the trials, even in the troubles. Sometimes they're punishment. Sometimes they're just for His glory. We need to understand the purpose of every captivity of Israel had been, was designed to turn them back to God. The reason that they're all recorded for us here in the Bible that we have, we can hold in our hands, we can study, is so that we may know who God is. The reason that we have the writings of Paul the Apostle, who was once Saul of Tarsus, going out and destroying people just like us, is so that we could get saved. I don't imagine that Peter and John and James, those first apostles, as they watched Christ be crucified, be buried, they saw his resurrected form and watched him ascend into heaven. I don't imagine that as they went out and began to preach in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, and they saw Saul of Tarsus come and begin to put them in jail and kill them. I can't imagine that they would have ever looked at that and said, He is going to be the one that leads more people to the Lord than any of us. Yet there are very few people that I know that didn't read through the book of Romans, that weren't shown salvation through the Romans' roads, which was written by Paul the Apostle. It may look dark. It may look bleak may look hopeless you may feel like you're completely alone but God is right there waiting waiting for you to seek him waiting for you to turn back to him and if you'll allow him to he will change the circumstances God's focus has always been on reconciliation rather than punishment. Even back in the book of Genesis, as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, 
and they hid themselves because they were naked and ashamed. The first act of a loving God was to give them coats so that they could be in his presence again. And then in his punishment of removing them from the garden, not only was it a protection to keep them from eating of the tree of life, to keep them from having to spend their the rest of eternity in that state, he promised that there would be the seed of a woman that would come and stomp the serpent's head. It took a few thousand years, but Christ was born. Be encouraged today, no matter where you are, whether you're on the top of the mountain or in the lowest valley. God is still where you left him. As we get into chapter 7 next week, we're going to see Esther make her plea and God begin to turn everything around. And again, save the Jews. As we get into Judges chapter 13 next week in Sunday school, we're going to see Samson be born and God begin to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. And as we get into John chapter 11 tonight, we're going to see a man raised from the dead. We're going to see people be able to rejoice. All because God loves us and he cares for us.